Hello and welcome to Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. This time I've teamed up again with John Potter and the Lib Dem pod crew to talk about the Conservative Party leadership contest. And we've included in the panel one of Nevermind the Bar Charts' most favourite guests, Professor Tim Bale. So without further ado, over to John. Hello, welcome back everyone. My name is John Potter. I am the host of the Lib Dem podcast and I am also a councillor and campaigner up here in sunny Lancashire. Before we get to the rest of the panel, we're going to talk a lot about membership. But obviously, and I'm not just because Mr President here, we do know that summer is the perfect time for Lib Dems to be recruiting members. And so if you go on to the uh, to the campaigners hub, you've got all your materials very worthwhile getting and going out there knocking on doors and seeing if we can sign up people because as we're going to talk about a lot of political parties struggle to get new members and new activists so now is the time to do it but without further ado i'll t- let's introduce our panel so obviously this is a combined podcast between the lib dem pod and the nevermind the bar charts pod so we have the wonderful host of the nevermind the bar charts podcast and party president mark pack hello mark Hi, John. Lovely to join you. I realise I've made a mistake in dressing today. I should have donned that green top that I have been photographed in standing next to Liz Truss 30 odd years ago because I still have it and it still fits. So apologies. I should have got into costume for this. I, I'm thank goodness you said costume because when you said I, sh- I didn't know I was going to have to be dressed for this, I thought I'd stumbled in the <laughs> wrong sort of podcast all of a sudden. We are also joined by someone who's been on Mark's podcast several times and has had, I think it's some of Mark's most popular episodes, mm. is That's Professor it. Tim Bell, who is a politics professor uh, and also a, an author of fantastic books like this one, which you're absolutely should buy from all good bookstores and some not good bookstores. Welcome to the podcast, Tim. Thank you very much, John. I'm really pleased to be here. And last but by no means least, we have Mary Ranier Wilson, who last time she was on the Lib Dem pod topped the top episode poll for about a year until John Curtis came on. So we couldn't ask for anyone better. And Mary is a fantastic, she's been an organiser, she's a campaigner, and you're also on the federal board as well, Mary. So welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here with such esteemed company. Thank you. Well, there you go. She's she's buttering you up already, Mark. And I think I think the place to start, Mark, is with you because mm. as we record now on Thursday afternoon, all polling seems to suggest that Liz Truss is going to walk this. But we want to do a little bit of a health check here that polling on internal polls is actually very difficult to make sure it's robust. Yeah, the the big challenge for doing polls of political party members is that nobody knows for sure what the composition is of political party's membership. You know, so the Lib Dems, for example, we know how many members we've got and we've got pretty good data on things like uh, what proportion are male, what proportion are female, what year they joined the party. But there's a whole load of other basic demographic criteria, which you know even political parties don't know about their own membership with with you know to any high degree of accuracy. And so when political polling firms try to find in their various panels people who are Tory party members, let's say, and poll them, it's a lot harder to weight those figures to make them properly representative of overall party membership in the way that we know with polling the public, you have to weight your figures to make it representative of the overall public. So you don't know what target you're aiming for. And the other thing is political party membership is one of those groups where it's quite likely that in some contests, the more online active you are, and hence the more likely you are to be polled in an online poll of party members, the more you might have, say, a more right wing view or a more left wing view or a more anti-leader view 
whatever that there may well you know that unrepresentativeness of the sample may well be an issue so just to give you one very simple uh, Lib Dem example one of the Lib Dem voice polls that was less successful a few years back was the party president contest where basically the Lib Dem voice sample had too many party activists in it mm. and therefore they under you know underrepresented the people who were not so engaged in the party and had come across one of the candidates quite often appearing on things like question time and so that broader audience had quite a different preference from more active audience and so that's the unknown I guess we've got a, a, for the Tory contest at the moment is how accurate that YouGov polling is. Yeah, and Tim, obviously you did a lot of work uh, looking into party membership. So as far as as you can tell now, I know it's broad brushstrokes, and we understand there's always there's always a kind of lots of spread of different people in all political parties. But broad brushstrokes, what is the current membership of the Tory Party like demographically? Well, um, we've been serving um, party members and particularly Conservative Party members actually since 2013 and the demographics haven't really changed that much, um, which is to say that uh, they're older compared to the um, population as a whole. Uh, they are average age around 57, say. Um, around four out of 10 of them will be in receipt of an old age pension or about to get their old age pension. Um, so they're, you know, relatively old, but not quite as old as some people imagine, I think. Uh, they tend to skew male rather than female. Um, and that's true, actually, for most political parties, but it's particularly true for um, the Conservatives. Uh, they are also rather more comfortably off uh, than the uh, average adults. About 80 percent of them uh, you'd put in that ABC1 um, category rather than the C2DE category. Uh, they also tend to live in the southern half of the country. So around 40% of them live in the south outside London. And if you add London in, uh, over half of them live in the south. And uh, like a lot of other political parties, they are uh, very, very skewed towards the white population of the country. So the Conservatives are around 96, 97%. Uh, white but then most political parties are about 95% white so uh, they're not that unusual in, in that respect. I think it's important then to understand really that, that party membership is, is quite a middle class game, it's actually quite a middle aged game uh, as well and it's certainly a white game and uh, as a result you know we, we have a party membership in this country which A isn't very high and B is actually fairly unrepresentative of the country as a whole. And Mary, are we seeing that in this contest, that that the unrepresented nature of party membership selecting a leader, is that that's obviously forcing the candidates to go down a particular avenue of campaigning? Is that is that how you see it? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it necessarily has as much to do with the demographics of the party membership per se as perhaps the kind of indirect effect, if you like, of, of those demographics. And that's their ideological uh, views. I mean, there, there is some relationship between the two there. Um, it, it's pretty clear that um, when it comes to the Conservative Party membership, we are talking about a bunch of people who are um, if you like, socially very conservative. You know, they are very concerned with law and order. They are very concerned with immigration, for example. Now, that, that doesn't actually put them that far away from the public as a whole. That's where they've actually got quite a lot in common um, with, with the uh, electorate uh, as a whole. Um, they are also uh, quite 
uh, right wing, if you like, on the economy, but not as right wing as some people think. And, and I think this is where it gets quite interesting. It, we've done uh, studies of MPs to compare them to uh, party members. And it's very clear there that the, the party membership of the Conservative Party isn't, for want of a better word, as if you like, neoliberal <laughs> or, or quite as kind of um, uh, capitalist, if you like, as, as uh, the party's representatives in, in Parliament are. So when you look at their underlying values, for example, they, they're, uh, you know, rather more suspicious, perhaps, of big business than you might imagine. Um, they are obviously against, um, you know, wholesale redistribution. But I, I think it's very important to realise that they also do value public services. And I think that partly has to do with their age, obviously. If we're talking about four out of ten of them being um, 65 and over, they're obviously fairly highly reliant on the NHS, for example. So I don't think you could get away, at least um, uh, explicitly or consciously, as a contestant uh, in the Conservative Party leadership race by saying that you were going to slash the NHS in order to slash taxes. Um, you know, slashing taxes is obviously something they like, but, uh, you know, there is a limit, if you like. Mary? Yeah, and I think... The other thing about them is the, the different types of members they have, because every political party has very different groups of members. And I mean, my granddad was a Conservative Party member. Um, in fact, the very first get out the vote I ever did was for a Conservative MP in 1992. Um, I, I didn't vote for him because it was just before my birthday. Um, and it's the only get out the vote I've done where I've won an election as well. Um, but... <laughs> um, but there's no way that he would be in the current Tory party. And we saw that in South Cams, where um, a number of the Conservative Party members that were on the more liberal and kind of nicer end of the spectrum came over to us in 2019. And so it's left behind a really hardcore rump of older people. And I think the other thing that we might be missing within it is that huge group of, they've got a lot of younger members um, or a lot of younger activists. And that there's that really hardcore sort of right wing younger Tory boy that is going to be very different in their aims and aspirations to that older demographic within the party, but has the same sort of right wing views on economics. And it will be really interesting to see how the differential turnout between those two groups affects the result and is affecting the polling. So I'm not sure that's being picked up in the polling. Yeah, I think also I would say, although I don't have the, the polling evidence to um, back this up, but if you look at what a lot of these young Conservatives are saying online, they are rather more concerned, for example, with housing as an issue uh, than their older counterparts. Uh, you know, so I, I do think there's a degree to which you know, demographics is destiny when it comes to um, people's policy preferences. So there, there are tensions there. I think Mary's right to say sometimes between the older and the, uh, the younger members. But I, I guess I should stress that probably only 10% of the Conservative Party membership is under 25. Although those Tory boys and those Tory girls have quite a high profile sometimes, uh, you know, particularly if you go to conference, uh, you, will, you will see a lot of them going to fringe meetings, et cetera, you know, and they are very active online, but they're not very representative of, of the, um, uh, the membership as a whole. And actually, they're not necessarily that active. In, in fact, when we look at party membership across the piece, all the parties we've looked at, uh, funnily enough, it tends to be the kind of middle-aged 
um, party member who is is the most active, as well as the member who, and I guess this comes to your point about organising, as well as uh, the members who feel actually um, very much part of their kind of local party, feel feel very much entrenched, if you like, in that kind of local community of, of activists uh, who do the most for their party. And, and I would say about the Conservative Party membership, uh, they are less active than, than other party members. Um, around, uh, from memory, you know, 40% of them did absolutely nothing whatsoever for the party in 2019, didn't even put a poster up in their window. Mm -hmm. So sometimes people, you know, when you when you read about party members, um, make this elision between activists and, and members, and, and they're often two very different things. The hardcore activist of, of the Conservative Party make up at most sort of 10, 15% of the membership. How is that different to Labour and the Lib Dems? I mean, this is an interesting comparison. Yeah, I mean, the Labour and the Lib Dems are a little bit more active, but you can you can overstate the extent um, still to which you know they will they will do stuff for their parties. But but certainly, actually, and Mark knows this. Um, it, it is true that on some of the activities, the Lib Dems are noticeably more active than others. And, and guess which one? Yeah, delivering leaflets <laughs> is the big one. <laughs> It's interesting we've talked about we've talked about turnout and actually one of the things that often skews is again people who shout loud aren't always the people who are most popular and actually it's a silent majority and we've seen it in uh, elections all over the time. I mean, if it was just about whoever shouted the loudest dick online, Jeremy Corbyn would have been prime minister by now. And actually, we know actually that it's the sometimes it's the silent grey vote that will get candidates over the line. Yeah, I think assuming Liz Truss wins. And I should maybe leave a pause there for you to be able to edit that out if, yes. uh, if she doesn't. But assuming Liz Truss wins, I guess the story will act, will be pretty straightforward, which is Paul Goodman on Conservative Home made this point that the, the Conservative Party, you know, their relative left and right is obviously all right from our perspective. But the relative left and right in the Tory party splits about two thirds right to one third know relative left in the Tory party. Rishi Sunak is the candidate of the Tory left. Liz Truss is the candidate of the Tory right. She therefore essentially starts with a two to one advantage. And in a way, the question to ask is, is there anything so remarkable happening that the candidate for the clear minority would win? And I think from what we've seen so far, there's nothing that gets close to what you would expect to be necessary to, to pull off you know what would therefore be a stunning up upset and I think the reason that's a good way of thinking about it is of course in many ways Rishi Sunak was the favourite to begin with but and, and therefore in a sense what the trust has done is surprising but perhaps on reflection when you think about the ideological makeup of the Tory party Liz Truss was you know should have always been uh seen as as likely to to, to defeat Rishi Sunak fairly comfortably because she's from the, the larger faction. It's a bit like if in the Lib Dems we had an election that was very geographically factionalised, you would expect the candidate from England, you know, would have a huge head start over a candidate from Scotland or Wales just in terms of the distribution of... Or the of, North. Of, yeah, it did, yeah. <laughs> the candidate from London and the home counties, you know, in terms of where our membership so ideologically, you know, Rishi Sunak is coming from the small outlier part. Mary, I mean, what's interesting there is also how Boris is still kind of in this contest. It's a funny old point as well, because you look at the, the polling of what the Conservative Party members want. They do. They say they don't particularly want a continuation of, of Boris. 
so they want so that's why Liz is saying, oh, you know, there was a great private eye from uh, cover saying we are the we're the candidates for change. We've been in government for 12 years or, or, or something like that. But actually, Boris is still there in the background. He's still got some favourables. And maybe it's that just that wing of the party. But what's your feeling about as, as Liz just went, just being clever, more clever about it by not wielding the knife? I think she has. But also um, people always want change. Change is attractive. Um, and you always have to, in any election, present your candidate as the change candidate, even if they're not going to do anything different, because there's just that kind of inbuilt need of people for something new and exciting. Um, it is really striking that more of the people that are backing Liz Truss on that polling would are backing her, but they would prefer Boris to come back. Mm. So I think people do want Boris, but they want Boris Mark too, Boris without the lies. Yeah. Um, and that's not going to happen. Um, so I don't think there was really much to do with him, with her not sticking the knife in. Rish is not getting the blowback that I think he's getting for that. It's more that they want her because she's going to carry on doing the stuff that Boris was doing. And even before the, um, the, the leadership sort of election started, Rishi was very much seen as the person who was antagonising Boris. You know, Boris's camp had already presented him as the person that was stopping Boris from doing what he really wanted to do. Um, so I think that conflict was already there and Liz just didn't have to get into it. Um, I think one of the really interesting things about the, um, and this is where it's different between the leadership contests that we've had and the Tory members, Rishi Sunak is, is more popular with the MPs. And I think he's probably more popular with the activists that know how to win elections because, but most Tory members don't, don't care about that because they are so arrogant that they assume that other people believe what they believe. And so whoever they choose will win the election. And it's really noticeable that that um, election, electionability, is that a word? Electability. Electability. Electability, that's the word. <laughs> <laughs> and that electability factor is not really being focused on in the contest. Yeah. Um, and, and, and even Tory uh, members have said, uh, Tory members have said that electability is just three percent of the trait they would like to see. So that was, I mean, from anyone like my point of view, if I had, if I, if I thought my leader only had a, we thought only three percent would get to it. Is that naivety, Tim or Mark? Is it, is it just that that they just want something, you know? Because whatever you think about Boris. He's not bad at winning elections, and maybe this is the kind of uh, the pivot away from that. I don't know. Yeah, I mean it's difficult, isn't it? Because an early YouGov poll, uh, admittedly of um, about half the size, actually, of the latest one, um, asked them about their priorities, and, and winning the election, the next election, was actually top of their priority mm. list. So they're they're a little bit kind of schizophrenic. <laughs> uh, this one, uh, to be honest, uh, I think you know it's uh, it, it is. I think Mary does have a point. I mean, I think, and this is where the Corbyn parallel actually comes in. I mean, a lot of people who chose Jeremy Corbyn as the leader of the Labour Party didn't choose him because they thought he wouldn't be much good at winning elections. They thought that what he was offering was so self-evidently what the country needed, because that's what they believed the country needed, that actually the country would warm to him. And I suspect that Mary's right to some extent that members you know, believe so strongly in some of the prescriptions that Liz Truss is offering that, you know, they think that they are self-evident and therefore that the electorate is bound to, as it were, see the light 
uh, as well. If that electability question got such a low response because people took electability to mean perceived by other people to be electable, mm-hmm. and because, you know, I'm trying to imagine what it would have been like to be a Tory activist over the last decade, but essentially the Tories have experience has been to be repeatedly told that they're behind in the polls, they're doomed, and then to pull off an election win. So, you know, they won the 2015 election, mostly against people's expectations. They were all being told they were completely doomed in 2019. They had the horror of the European Parliament election, but they won the 2019 election. And of course, if you're a Tory leaver, you can add the 2016 referendum to that list. So I wouldn't be surprised if part of their thought process is, yeah, absolutely, they do want to win the next election. But all of this guff from outsiders or people in other parties about who's the most electable just keeps on being wrong. And I suspect so that may be the way to reconcile those two questions. And I do think, um, nonetheless, it is surprising and maybe a relief for us in the Lib Dems how little either Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss seem to be interested in winning votes back from us. You know, the normal dynamic of a Labour or Tory party leadership election is to make lots of Lib Dems worried because at least one of the candidates is making a real pitch that sounds like it's coming after our voters, you know, and and that may be a smaller or a bigger part of their pitch, depending on which election. But normally there is a sense of at least one candidate wants to take votes off us. If anything, Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak have got the perfect list of policies to help make our job easier, (laughs) you know, taking votes off, off the Tories. And that's a very unusual situation to be in. So I hope Tim isn't about to tell me that I'm being horribly complacent in thinking that but it does feel like they don't really want to go after us tim any any thought well i suppose that leads on to what do the tory what do the tory membership actually care about is 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 the is the key point because i think some of us can naively think you know they are you know frothing at the mouth say oh it's the woke agenda or whatever but actually you know particularly now they they care about how they're going to pay their gas bill they this is something that's going to affect all they care about the nhs backlogs um but tim i mean from your research do we know like what their key issues are and what they kind of rank well i mean i think you've put your finger on a couple of them to be honest i mean i think the nhs is important to them it's not as important as the cost of living crisis is at the moment but also um you, you can see a very big divergence from um, the electorate when it comes to immigration, mm-hmm. because immigration has really dropped like a stone in terms of salience with the electorate as a whole. But for the Conservative Party members, it's still really, really important. They are very much exercised, for example, by um, people turning up in small ba- boats on the Kent coast and needing to do something about that. Therefore, they were incredibly enthusiastic about the Rwanda policy, where the public were relatively enthusiastic but you know um rather more um divided on it uh so i i think there's that i think tax cuts are important to them um but not always necessary per se in terms of you know shrinking the state but also because they believe that that's the way to um you know bring growth uh, to the economy but I, I think you are right to stress that they do live in the real world i mean it is easy to stereotype these people as kind of blue rinse dragons or red faced colonels, you know, or indeed to sort of suggest somehow they're all super rich and living in gated communities or whatever. But they're certainly not like that. You know, they, they might live in a particular part of the real world, but they do still live in the real world. They are, you know, aware there are problems in the NHS. They're, they will be aware that there are problems in 
uh, even in education as well, because they've got grandchildren, they've got children uh, as well. So they're, they're not totally divorced from the concerns uh, of the public by, by any stretch. I mean, that's one thing that has struck me about the Tory leadership election is although there's been a lot of rhetoric about being anti-woke and the like, there's actually very little that they're talking about wanting to roll back. There definitely are uh, some areas around trans rights where, you know, whoever wins, it feels like we will take a step back. But all of the previous rounds of debates over essentially how socially liberal the country should be and, you know, things that have caused huge controversy in the Tory party in the past, like allowing same-sex couples to adopt or indeed legalisation of same-sex marriage, for all of the anti-woke rhetoric, there doesn't seem to be any push to undo any of those things. And it's, you know, I, I do wonder to what extent a lot of what we're hearing is rhetoric that's about sort of signalling rather than rhetoric that's meant to be taken literally. So, or to give a, a, a different example, Liz Truss's rhetoric about basically wanting to banish uh, solar power farms, uh, you know, from Britain's fields. I suspect that's not really what she wants to do, or indeed the audience who was clapping her really want. There's definitely something there about the balance between having solar panels on fields and using them for, say, growing crops. But I, I think a lot of the rhetoric is, is seems to be much more about signalling rather than stuff to be taken at face value as to this is exactly the policy they would then implement. Mary? I think there's something about how, um, and I might have got this completely wrong, but that they're very much talking about things that other people, their members can get angry about. Mm. You know, there's very little hope, there's very little positivity in it, which is actually a big difference from what Boris said. Yeah. You know, what Boris's was absolutely, I'm going to get this stuff done. Whereas now both of the leadership candidates are talking about the awful things that have been allowed to happen whilst these Tories have been in government for 12 years. Yeah. For some reason, they're not getting pulled up on that by their members. But it's that age old thing that it's far, you know, uh, voting even in a leadership election for a lot of even party members who like to think that they're making informed choices is actually a gut reaction. And if you can get people's guts on the that thing of connecting on the I think this is bad and you think this is bad, therefore we both think the same, therefore we have a connection. And I think that's what a lot of the sort of the solar farm stuff is, the trans stuff where it's totally not what normal people out in the country think, but they're kind of latching onto those, well, of course, this is just common sense stuff that everybody would be against within that membership. And if you presented it in a different way, then you'd get an entirely different answer to the question. Um, but they want to make that sort of gut emotional connection with their voters, their, their electorate in this case, by being angry about the same things that they're angry about. Um, it, it's a really effective tactic. Um, wonder, it doesn't work in real elections later on so much. But I wonder if they're spurning this opportunity because I, I'm very proud of uh, the Lib Dems uh, record on trans rights, etc. But if it comes to a general election, how many members of the actual public are going to come to me and say, you know what, I really want to talk to you about trans rights? It's going to be a, a minority, a tiny minority of a tiny minority. And I, and I'm really... Sorry, go on, Mary. It's because it's not about trans rights. Mm. It's about progressive. That's the kind of signal issue for progressiveness versus nostalgia. 
for the and, and I know they're not all blue rinse tourists, but the, those people who just don't really understand this. And so it's a little bit scary and it's new world stuff that they don't want to. This is the trans rights issue is not about trans rights. It's about progressive versus safe. And Liz Truss is absolutely appealing to that sort of safety and the when the world was like we knew it was rather than when everything is getting a little bit different and changing. It's also, I think, um, not just the trans rights issue, but, you know, very many issues. It's about portraying strength. It's about, you know, suggesting that you are willing to stand up to the blob, you know, to political correctness, whatever it is. And, and actually, when we survey party members after the 2019 election across all parties, it's very noticeable that for conservatives, that, you know, when, when we ask them about the uh, qualities they look for in a leader, um, by far the, the one that came top was um, a strong leader. So I think, you know, that's where Liz Truss in some ways has played this incredibly well um, by suggesting she's going to stand up to this or stand up to that. Uh, she that has left what this or that is. Yeah. It's I'm going to be the strong voice that's going to stand up against. Yes, exactly. I think I think I think that's exactly it. Mary's put a finger on it. I think that's exactly what it is. So portraying herself as strong is is useful. And, and, and Sunak, I'm afraid you know, will we'll come over, therefore, in comparison as weak or at least inauthentic. I mean, I, I think he's he's played the um, the campaign so incredibly badly. Yeah. Even taking what Mark said and Paul Goodman said into account, which I, I think is very accurate. Um, I think he's, he's sort yeah. of stuffed up um, way worse than he needed to have done by, first of all, um, you know, portraying himself, I think probably quite rightly, as the grown-up in the room. And then suddenly, when that wasn't, you know, getting any purchase or any traction at the beginning, getting into this bidding war, which makes him look completely inauthentic, yeah. because you just don't believe that Rishi Sunak is the kind of guy who feels he needs to stand up to this or to that. And, and I was really struck how he therefore, you know, really went for the anti-woke rhetoric, where... You know, obviously, his campaign wasn't working, so it made sense for him to change tack. But he could have changed tack in a, you know, essentially libertarian direction of saying, what on earth is it the job of a government, a conservative government of all governments, to try to micro-regulate what private companies decide to put as their signs on their toilet doors? Yeah. How absurdly nanny state. Yeah, there's a really good libertarian you know, uh, sort of traditional right-wing Tory argument in favour of trans rights, actually. You know, so he could have, you know, he could have gone for that. I suspect part of it may well be that he is, for all that he's a very senior politician, you know, he's one vote away from becoming prime minister, albeit he almost certainly won't win that vote, but, you know, he's, <laughs> for all that he's a senior politician, he's quite inexperienced. And I think one thing that comes with inexperience is until you're, views have really been put to the test even if you think you know what you believe in politics mm -hmm. it's only really when you're forced to make a choice that that's when you really know what deep down you actually believe what you know what 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 really is the priority and in that sense I think he's just because of his inexperience I suspect his political views are rather more malleable and flexible than if someone had been through several rounds of of sort of intense political conflict over issues and all of that, for better and for worse, the extent to which you find out what you really believe. And of course, you then end up getting entrenched in your own viewpoint as well. Um, yeah, what I say, you didn't go for the libertarian line on trans rights and toilet doors. That would have been, we'd have all been cheering him on. We would, but but he's inexperienced as a campaigner, not so much as a politician. Mm, yeah. And it's one 
when you get given a safe seat and when you never actually have to really tough it out we've we've seen it ourselves but <clears throat> it's that kind of you know being really down in the weeds and having to having to lose something losing something makes you realize what you want to win and, and how you want to win it and that's what he has not got and um, in 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 a sense liz's um experience with the lib dems is what's made her a good campaigner i think um, <laughs> exactly it, it hand, handing out neil Forsyth designed leaflets from a young age as you know trained her well yeah it but but it does and it gives you that you know it gives you that need to you know no, nobody that grew up in the oxford union young liberals doesn't know the benefit of persuading people one vote at a time of you know i mean strong voices off our leaflets for going out loud mm. you know we, we always say that we're going to be the strong voice that stands up for our local community so in a way it's our fault that we gave her such a good grounding in how to actually campaign to win something yeah, I, I'm not going to take any. I'm not going to take any blame for Liz Truss. I, I, I'm. <laughs> You're I'm too young, little, John. You're too young. Yeah, I'm just, th- thank you, Mark. That's that's very good of you. Um, now I do wonder if this is if we're looking at like kind of causation versus and and who's actually driving this agenda? Are are the leadership reacting to what the membership want, or are the mem or are the leaders thinking that's what the membership want and then driving the party that way? And it's because it's really because I mean for those that don't know. Um, the Lib Dems in where I am are all in the kind of Tory facing suburbs. That's our main fight. And it's it's really noticeable this time because we do our, again, as we're good Lib Dems, we do our summer surveys. The difference in what priorities have come out, and I realise this isn't scientific in any way, but certainly tax, which wouldn't have featured last year because we use the same kind of questions each year, w- was nowhere last year. It's only 40% of respondents are putting it as one of their top three. NHS has risen up to 78% because these are the people that are struggling to get GP appointments. And I and I can't think, and that's what I was, I was mentioning before, This some of the topics they're choosing aren't the ones that are, are going to win them an election in two years' time. They're, they might win them this particular election, but are they missing out on a chance when the whole world's watching it, and I've, I've I've heard all sorts of Lib Dems going, can't believe the water wall coverage they're getting for this contest. But actually, it's a real opportunity for them to say, and it would be difficult for, say, Liz Truss to say, uh, to do, how is she going to row back from what she said this time? And uh, I suppose, Mark, I'll come to you first, because I think I'm not, for me, I think they're, 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 Making a point now, but I'm going to make, but that's going to lead it to much more difficulties in the general election. Yeah, I mean, it sounds obvious to say, but it's worth remembering that the electorate in the Tory leadership election is Conservative Party members. So, to a large extent, it's unsurprising that they're pitching their messages yeah. and members. And if anything, Rishi Soon, one of Rishi Sunak's mistakes perhaps was initially not to focus enough on what Tory members particularly wanted to hear. Uh, but I am surprised at how, you know, given that. Liz Trust does seem to be the well-established front runner. How many sort of hostages to fortune? You know, she does seem to be. She's not taking a sort of safety first, keep as many of your options open when you have to pivot to then worrying about the public subsequently. Um, but I mean, that was sort of Boris Johnson style. And you know, for all of the his many failures and his many flaws, he won a general election. So I can see why, you know, that may be the model that looks like the right model for her to, to copy. But I'm I'm surprised that there seems to be so little discussion in this contest in you know the Tory ranks about, well, where are we going to get the vote, you know, the votes from to succeed at the next general election? You know, 
it, a little there's a little bit of stuff about well, who can best keep the red wall coalition together but that seems to be about it yeah i think i mean what's interesting to me is this, there's a huge contrast between the 2019 contest and this contest in the sense that really uh, that was all about brexit and who mm. was going to get brexit done and who was going to be able to convince the membership that they were going to get brexit done by if you remember the 31st of october mm. so actually there there wasn't much of this you know promising this promising that etc i think now that that brexit to some extent has has, uh, has gone although we can debate that clearly um, you know they've begun to make a whole series of promises that as you say they can't possibly keep now whether that is as much of a problem as you know a rational person might think it is is a good question I mean I suspect that what Liz Truss has learned from Boris Johnson is that you can promise this that and the other and it doesn't necessarily matter if you don't if you don't always deliver it um, you know so those those policies that she's promising, which look to us maybe like hostages to fortune, could all be forgotten in the blink of an eye. And, um, you know, she could go and do a whole bunch of completely different things um, yeah. because that's and, the way politics works now, possibly. And, and I guess just to add to that, I mean, one of the reasons why I'm, in a sense, not impressed by just the range of policies they're talking about is just, you know, the huge cost of living crunch coming this autumn and how little either of the candidates have to say about fuel bills for example but I guess you, you can turn that point around and in a sense make it an ally of what you just said Tim which is that the next prime minister's reputation is going to be basically made or broken by how they deal with things like fuel bills this autumn they do that successfully they can happily ditch all of the policies through the leadership election everyone will have forgotten because they'll be lauded for doing it and on the other hand, if they fail, it doesn't matter how hard they try to keep their previous promises, it will be that failure. So in a way, I, weirdly, the slate will get, I think, swept clean, you know, largely for whoever the winner is by that autumn question, won't it? I'm not sure that it will. And I might be begging you to delete this in a couple of years time, John, but okay. I think they're just incompetent. Mm. I, 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 I don't think I'm being too naive to think that they just don't actually know what they're doing a lot. You know, the, the Conservative Party has, these things go in cycles mm. and they've been in power for 12 years. It's a cycle where they're coming to the end of their ideas and their reason for being. And I think they just haven't really, there is an element where Boris has taught them that you can promise anything and then go back on it. And I don't think they've realised just how much the general public dislike that. I mean, they should have done because Tiverton should have shown them that even if North Shropshire hadn't. But I think there is a sense in them that they can get away with it. And I think they're wrong to think that because I think that the voters that they need in the key areas aren't going to take that. Um, the Red Wall was won by Boris because people in those areas trusted Boris to get stuff done. And I don't think that either of these two have got the charisma to make voting Tory the habit, a new habit for those people up there. And we know very well that we're going to take lots of seats from them in the Blue Wall and the Blue Hedge and whatever else we're calling the <laughs> southern seats. But the Corn Wall, I think you'll find. The what, sorry? <laughs> the Corn Wall. Okay, no. <laughs> Nicking someone else's joke there. But I think Devon and Somerset. But I, I do think, and I don't think I'm grasping here, that they're just not very good at this. 
Mm. I think what this wasn't that true of both Corbyn and Johnson, and that you know, in in both cases, it took an it took several years for political gravity, reality, karma to catch up with them. You know, Corbyn had the relative triumph of the 2017 election. I mean, he still lost it, but, you know, relative mm. success. Boris Johnson won 2019. I guess the the fear for us, you know, and what we need to therefore work really hard to ensure doesn't happen, is that all of the things, Mary, that you rightly identified, that they sort of end the next prime minister's career after a general election victory in the interim. And, that you know, the risk is political gravity can be quite sluggish at times. I think it's their pitch they're they're struggling with at the moment. So you look at the respondents, they, you know, the respondents you've talked about a little bit, you know, strong personal character, strong leader is coming through a lot from the Tory membership. Um, but honesty, integrity has come forward in that as well, in terms of they just, I think they're tired, the Tories actually. The Tory membership is like, we just, you know, whether they're councillors or the member of the Conservative Association, we are sick of having to explain to our friends what these Muppets are doing in Westminster. But what they need to counteract that is a pitch going forward. And we, I think, Mark, me and you talked about it as I was on the long, long, long drive back from Devon, um, mm. was the fact that what is the Tories' pitch at the next election? And at the moment, I don't see where that is. And, it's, and until they figure that out, it's very difficult. I mean, Tim... Uh, based on what you're hearing, what do you think, that, how would the Tories pitch to that kind of moderate England they need to get to hold on to a, a whole raft of seats? Well, I think it's going to be very difficult. I mean, I think, you know, Johnson won the election in 2019, as Mary said, um, partly on the promise of getting Brexit done, partly obviously because he was facing Jeremy Corbyn, but also on getting Brexit done in order to get all this other stuff done, in particular kind of levelling up and um, you know, pouring more investment into the health service, pouring more investment into education, into policing, etc. And unless, you know, they, they've got some magic ability in the next year and a half to, to actually pull that off, I think they are going to find it very, very difficult. It, I mean, I suppose, you know, the way they seem to be going at the moment is almost to imply that, you know, they're going to kind of finish Brexit. They're going to make sure that it's not a Remainers Brexit. It's going to be the Brexit that they always wanted rather than Brexit in name only. But of course, we know there isn't actually very much support for that kind of Brexit in any case. So I think you're right to point to a real problem for them, actually. Um, I guess, you know, what they've always got is the whole coalition of chaos, um, you know, versus, uh, you know, a a more stable um, Conservative Party. But even that one looks a bit difficult to pull (laughs) off to me. It's a hell of a lot more difficult to say that Yasnama is going to be terrible for the country. I mean, he's boring as hell, but he's not going to be chaotic. But he's not well liked. He's again, it came up again, just the conversation I did just on Monday. Again, there's a there's a dislike on Starmer. And I and I I a bit like you, I find him boring. He's you know, he's really vanilla, but for some reason, and we've got it down in um Tiverton as well, people come to the door saying, um, yeah, I'm disgusted at Boris Johnson. The Tory party is an absolute circus, but I really don't want Keir Starmer. And I think, and that's that, that for me is almost like my biggest fear over the next two years is how, because I don't know if Labour are going to be able to detoxify it. That's, that's the thing, because I think Labour's got their own internal fights going on where I don't know how you, they improve brand Starmer to, to get that across the line in whenever we have a general election. They need to for those people. Because, you know, you're canvassing in places that we're targeting. Mm. And 
there's a very different outlook of Keir Starmer between the people who were the traditional Tory voters and they don't need to vote for Keir Starmer, they need to vote for us. So, mm. so that sort of middle ground Tory switchers are that were really scared. I mean, I had them here in South Camden in 2019 that there were so many people who loved us, loved our candidate, but were really scared of Corbyn. And they didn't need to like the Labour leader. They needed to like their Lib Dem MP, mm. potential MP. But I don't think that those people really have that I hate Keir Starmer. It's more that those people that we need to switch have the more he's boring. But again, it's it's a cycle, isn't it? The, the electorate goes from being like really excited and having these charismatic leaders to somebody who is just boring and safe. John Major came after Thatcher. Gordon Brown came after Blair, which was, you know, it, he wasn't actually the boring one, but it's really interesting how this mm -hmm. rhetoric of what those people's characters are sticks with the general populace um, and yeah Keir Starmer is the right person to come after somebody like Boris Johnson because he's just the exact opposite in terms of being boring well, well we will before I bring Mark in, we'll absolutely see, because, I, I mean, again, I like to promote the, the Times Red Box focus group podcast mm. that they do once a month. And actually, what comes up regularly about Keir Starmer, because they ask every single person, that, um, what do they make of Keir Starmer every month to track it? And actually, he's not particularly well trusted, which is what interestingly comes out. And words like shifty come around with Keir Starmer, which, again... Not wouldn't be the words I would use, but he seems to have. I don't know how he was ever supposed to manage this, Mark. But it was. It doesn't seem like the way Keir Starmer's progression has gone from COVID to now has actually landed him in a in a nice spot with the electorate. Yeah, and I think you know if you imagine a world in which Keir Starmer bombs at the next election, and we're then trying to work out well how did that happen, and there's a really obvious bit of evidence available at the moment which is if you look at say the Redfield and Wilton polls where they do a poll uh, every week that asks about leader approval ratings and you know do you stro very strongly approve do you approve disapprove very strongly disapprove Keir Starmer only gets low single digits very strongly approving of his record mm -hmm. now when you just think how many Labour members and trade union activists and you know diehard Labour fans to have low only low single digits saying they very strongly approve of his record just shows a real brittleness about his popularity and he definitely overall polls better at the moment than uh, than his Tory rivals and than his Labour predecessor but it's a very you know lukewarm it's a soft uh, vote support for him. and so you can see mm -hmm. how if he does end up against some tough political times, a really big controversy, or a you know, new prime minister who does really well, that's really, really, you know, if I was him, that's the thing I would be worrying most about. Why is it he can't even get 10% of voters to say they strongly approve of what he's doing? I think there's an element of the, the shiftiness more than in, in authenticity, a, a lack of authenticity. And I think that's what they're picking up, that he's not that strong leader, you know, at least you knew where you were with Boris. You knew he was going to lie to you about everything. <laughs> but he was authentically Boris. And I think so much more as we you know, become, when we digest leaders by sound bites, that they have to come over really quickly to people. And mm -hmm. Keir Starmer, as a lawyer who gives the nuanced position, and sometimes is prepared to change his mind if people will give him evidence, 
doesn't come over as authentic at all. And that authenticity is what voters really want to see and what they really connect with in a way that us as you know, political animals don't because we like looking at all the evidence and both sides of the story. So I think it's really difficult sometimes for us to realize how, how much of a gut reaction most voters have to people. And Keir Starmer does not have a gut reaction. And if you don't have a gut reaction to somebody, mm. whether good or bad, then you're going to think that they're a little bit shifty and a little bit inauthentic. Yeah. Well, here's a question. Imagine you had to spend a three-hour train journey with Boris Johnson, Keir Starmer, Liz Truss, or Rishi Sunak. Which of the four would you pick? And I, I asked that question because I fear I would actually pick Boris Johnson mm. because Keir Starmer, I think, would be boring. Rishi Sunak is like a hyperactive children's TV presenter. And Liz Trust, it would just be really, you know, be okay, fun five minutes, mem memories of the Lib Dems, and then it would be really awkward. You know, I, it, it amazes me that there is any metric of which I would pick Boris Johnson as the preferable option. But but I, in a sense, I think that gets to your point, Mary, and your point, John, about what those focus groups illustrate is there, there was at least something just lively and interesting and charming about Boris Johnson. And definitely, if I had to book an after-dinner speaker and I was told, look, because of this audience, it has to be a leading conservative, you know, which, you know, who would you pick? I mean, reluctantly, I would have to put have Boris Johnson's name in the mix, much as I would really want to find someone else to invite so that he doesn't get paid money for making a whole set of jokes about what a disaster he was. But, you know, but there's there's definitely a skill that he has there and a charm that he has there that means I think I would pick him for the train journey. Sorry, everyone. There we go, listeners. Which uh, which one would you have in your time? Now, now Rishi Sunak would definitely not be in my price bracket of train carriage. He would. He, <laughs> I don't know if there's a gold leaf carriage that the, with yeah. with an inbuilt swimming pool on uh, uh, on on modern trains. But no, but I think we'll we'll leave this episode on the on the final point. So uh, I, I mean, I was quite surprised the toys have 160. Uh, thousand members because I remember hearing about the cameos it was a lot less than that now there's a lot of chat about whether 2019 had an influx of former UKIPers so as much as we can or care um, what what do you think the future of the Tory party membership is going to be like I mean will they keep going with this will will they I mean Tim will come to you first do you think they're they're going to grab on to this kind of like populism and really run with it to keep those newish members in or will the moderate old school paternalistic uh, Tory members make a little fight back? I think uh, Mary's right. There are fewer and fewer of them um, these days. I mean, people started surveying party members in the late 80s, early 90s, and it was obvious that, you know, there were a lot more centrist members back then than there are now. So uh, I'm not saying their, their day is done, but there, there aren't that many of them. Um, they'll definitely keep going in a highly Eurosceptic direction. I mean, that's been the big the big change and actually just going back if I can to a point that you were raising you know is it the leaders who who um, mm. shape the preferences of the members or, or do the the leaders have to um, accommodate the preferences of the members I mean I, I think it's obviously a bit of both but I do think actually that that members are quite led by by leaders um, perhaps particularly in the in the Conservative Party because leadership is you know such a premium uh, for them. And I think those kind of celebrity leaders like uh, Rhys Mogg, like Boris Johnson, have to some extent pulled the party towards that very kind of Eurosceptic and rather populist 
uh, direction which they've they've taken on now. As far as numbers are concerned, I mean, this leadership contest will have pulled in some members. Mm. It's always amazing how many people join, perhaps thinking they'll get a vote, realizing that they won't get a vote, but you know they're they're still there. They paid their subs, so you know they might put on some members as a result of of this, but. I think obviously if they if they elect a prime minister who doesn't do very well and they lose the next election, then they will lose members because that's that's inevitable. People tend to leave uh, when uh, um, a, a governing party does badly, with the exception, and this is where I'll finish, of the Lib Dems in uh, in um, 2015, because actually the Lib Dems um, managed to put on members uh, after after that election, whether it was a sympathy vote or or whether it was because, you know, people felt that they'd been hard done by and therefore deserved a bit of support. Rather unusually, they bucked the trend in, in that respect. Go on, Mary. I can see you're dying um, to come in. Um, I, think, I think our membership goes up when we... Our membership goes up when the country suffers. So I spoke to a lot of the people that joined in 2015 and 2016, and a, a resounding sort of thing that was coming through was that they thought that somebody needed to do something and they were the somebody. So it was ordinary people, not particularly. It was just like, oh, my God, what have we let happen? We have to stop this. And um, I think you're right about the centrist Tories. I'm not sure that they will leave, but they will become far less active. Um, I was um, in disguise at the Chelmsford AGM recently and surrounded by a group of old Tories who didn't realise who I was. And so <laughs> spoke quite openly about the fact that they were really struggling to find councillors and candidates for next year. And I think that that's a big problem for the, those paternalistic Tories who used to be the backbone of their community. I don't think they'll leave the party because it's a social thing as much as anything for a lot of Tory members, but they won't get involved. They won't stand. I mean, we saw in St Albans, the Tories in St Albans couldn't stand a full slate of candidates at the council elections, which is just unbelievable but it's because those older more centrist paternalistic Tories aren't thinking that they want to get involved and do stuff for free for this party that is going that way so their numbers might not go down but I think their levels of activism will go down even more than they already have done um, and you know some of those people will come over to us and if they have liberal tendencies and believe in our fundamental values then they will be more than welcome and I'll Put them to work shoving leaflets through letterboxes. Uh, Tim, just as for all our listeners and viewers who may not have uh, heard you speak before, where can people find uh, your works and uh, give them a, a taste of what they can expect when they do? Uh, <laughs> well, uh, you can follow me on Twitter if you like, uh, at Prof Tim Bale. Um, you can just Google, um, you know, me really. You'll find some stuff I've written for the media. Uh, there you can go on the Queen Mary University of London website and find me there as well if you like to lovely and I'm sure they will well thank you Mark thank you Mary thank you Tim that was a a, a really interesting topic I, I, uh, anyone here think that Sunak's going to win let's have a look no no uh, no could you, could you could you ask that again and we'll all nod 
and then yeah. we're covered with the edit. <laughs> but, yeah, so everyone, everyone shake the head and then everyone nod and then we've got it covered either way. That's right. No, but thank you so much, everyone, for listening and watching to this episode. Make sure you subscribe to the Nevermind the Bar Charts podcast wherever you get your podcasts. If you listen to the Lib Dem pod, you remember you can follow us on uh, both YouTube and you can follow us wherever you get your podcasts as well. And make sure you check out all the, the social media tags for all these guys and girls. So it's very worthwhile doing. We'll have loads more episodes to come on both these podcasts. And as Britain enters this stage, so long as the Russians or whatever don't hack the Tory party membership ballot system, that would be the only thing that might throw a scupper in it. But thank you very much for listening. We'll be back with more episodes very soon. Thank you very much. <laughs>